You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel. So Daniel, one of the major prophets there, uh, right after Ezekiel. So you find the big prophetic books, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, then comes Daniel. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Let's begin by reading our text, which comes from Daniel chapter 1 this morning. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to, under, uh, to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself, and God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Verse 17, And these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in visions and dreams. And at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than the magician, magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as this, mor- this morning as we study it, as we open it, Lord, we desire to hear from you through it. So, Lord, would you help us to understand what it says? And would you help us to apply it to our lives so that we might truly uh, be doers of your word and apply these things to our lives, that we might be transformed in our hearts and minds, and that that might translate into real-life actions as well. So, Lord, we dedicate this time to you. We ask that you would speak to us. We're listening. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever found yourself in an environment that was, let's call it, not conducive or not encouraging to Christian faith. Maybe it's a classroom that you've been in. Maybe it's a place where you work. Maybe it's a family gathering, but it was just not conducive to Christian faith. Maybe it's a group of friends that you regularly hang out with or spend time with, and there's pressure in that environment, whatever it is, there's pressure to act or think in a certain way that isn't conducive to Christianity, or let's say it's not exactly encouraging you to follow Jesus. Well, let me ask you another question. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you didn't want to be, right? Like where, where you felt like, I don't feel like I'm supposed to be here. I don't feel like I want to be here. And yet here I am anyway. Those are the exact situations that the prophet Daniel found himself in here during his life, which you read about in this book called Daniel. And as a young man, he was taken against his will to Babylon, a place where he didn't want to be. And he faced there a ton of pressure, 
a ton of pressure on every side to compromise his most fundamental beliefs and to conform to the way that the people there said that he should act and think. And so the question for us is this, how can we live a God-honoring life in the midst of a hostile environment? How can we live a God-honoring life in the midst of a hostile environment? That's what the life and story of Daniel is all about. You know, it's been said that any dead fish can go, go with the flow, but it takes a live one to go against the stream. Any dead fish can just go with the flow, but it takes a live one to go against the stream. Well, Daniel was a live one, right? He had the courage, he had the strength to swim against the stream and go against the current, go against the grain. And he's an amazing example for us. And his story, I think, is very relevant for many of us and where we're at in our lives today. The title of today's message is How to Live a God-Honoring Life in a Hostile Environment. And with Daniel, what we see, we see three things that are key to living a God-honoring life in a hostile environment, and that, th those are these. The power of a made-up mind. So that's the first thing we're going to talk about, the power of a made-up mind. Secondly, we're going to talk about the power of integrity. And thirdly, we're going to talk about the power of engagement. So a made-up mind, integrity, and engagement. These things have power. That's what we're going to be talking about. We're currently in the midst of a series called Remember the Prophets. The idea for this series comes from James chapter 5, verse 10, where James tells us, remember the prophets and focus, he says, and, and look to them as examples. In other words, when we look at the prophets, we shouldn't just look at what they said, James is telling us. We should look at the way that they lived. We should look at who they were as people and how they lived and how their lives and the way they conducted themselves is an example for us for how we live today. And that's definitely the case with Daniel. For the past few weeks, though, we've been going through several of the prophets. We've been going through them in chronological order. Now, you might know that the way these books are arranged in your Bible is not by chronological order. They're not arranged by the order they happened in historically. Rather, the prophetic books are arranged by theme and size, theme and size. But for our sake, we've been taking in this series, we've been going through it chronologically, and hopefully this has helped you get a picture, kind of a big picture understanding of what was going on during this entire time period. Because what I've found is that this is a period that's a little bit fuzzy for a lot of people, even people who are really familiar with the Bible. Today we come to the prophet Daniel. And the first few verses of this book tell us when Daniel lived and what was going on at that time, what was happening in the world at that time, at least for, for the people of Jerusalem. It says in verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we've, we've talked about Jehoiakim for the last two weeks. He was a very evil king, very different than his father, Josiah, who was one of the best and most godly kings who ever reigned in Judah. And during the reign of Jehoiakim, Judah went into this massive spiritual decline, this moral decline and spiritual decline, and they were doing things which were very grievous to, to the heart of God. And so God warned Jehoiakim through the prophets Habakkuk and Jeremiah. He warned him, and he said, if you continue to lead the nation in the way that you've been leading the nation, I will do whatever it takes to stop you from doing, from continuing to do what you're doing, these evil things you're doing, I will stop you and I will do whatever it takes to get your attention, to get the people's attention and get them to get back on their knees and get back to seeking me. You know, I think, I think that many of you know this. Maybe some of you know it from experience, right? Sometimes it takes a crisis in your life to jumpstart your spiritual life. You know what I mean? Like the uh, batteries are dead, so to say, and you need to be jump-started. And sometimes it takes a crisis to make that happen. Sometimes you need a wake-up call 
to get you to stop doing something that's, that you're doing that's destructive. Sometimes you need a wake-up call in order to get you to turn back to God and start seeking Him and, and praying and, and reading His Word and, and fellowshipping again. You know, for some people, that, that kind of crisis, you, maybe you got a DUI and it's just this huge wake-up call like, oh my gosh, now I finally see what I've been doing. Or maybe it's when your spouse walks out the door. Or maybe it's when you get fired from your job and it ends up being a thing that God can use in your life to get your attention and get you turned back to Him. Well, that's what God did with Judah. In, his, in their case, God allowed the Babylonians, in fact, it says that God raised up the Babylonians to come and attack Jerusalem. Now, here's something really important for you. Maybe some of you guys are confused about the timeline, so let me help you with this. Babylon actually attacked Jerusalem on three different occasions. So this didn't all happen in one attack. It happened over the course of several years, three different attacks, and they finally culminated with Babylon destroying Jerusalem in 587 BC, and that was the time when they destroyed the temple and they took everybody into captivity and took them back to Babylon. But this attack that's happening here, this was the first siege of Jerusalem that the Babylonians did, and this happened in 605 BC. So 605 BC. So this wasn't when the temple got destroyed and everybody got taken in exile. In fact, it actually tells us that there in verse 2. The Babylonians didn't destroy Jerusalem still at this point. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar at this point, he just took some things out of the temple, kind of as trophies, and put them in the temple of his own gods. And then in verse 3, it says they captured some of the people of Judah, but not all of them. Specifically, they took the royal family, they took the nobility, and they took the most promising young people in the country. And the purpose of taking them to Babylon, it tells us in verse 4, was so that they could be taught and trained in the literature and language of the Chaldeans, who are the Babylonians. That's a, just another word for the Babylonians, interchangeable. Now, in other words, the Babylonians took the best and the brightest young people, the most promising young people from Jerusalem, and took them back to Babylon to train them to be their next leaders in Babylon. Now, this was done both to weaken Judah and Jerusalem and to strengthen Babylon. It says in verse 5 that these young people were put through a three-year training program in which the Babylonians tried to indoctrinate them and they tried to groom them to become the next leaders of Babylon. And it says in verse 6 that the names of, of these four young people who were part of this program, or, or at least four of the young people who were part of this program, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And as they were brought into Babylon, it tells us there that the Babylonians also gave them new names, right? So what are they doing? They're trying to change their identity, not just change the way that they think, but trying to change their entire identity. They gave them new names, Babylonian names. You know, Daniel was called Belteshazzar. The others, their names were changed to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now think about this. These guys are teenagers, right? Like 13 to 17 years old, roughly. They're teenagers. They've been kidnapped. They've been taken hundreds of miles away from their families. And the Babylonians are doing everything they can to indoctrinate them, to change their identity, and to make them leave behind their God and their culture. And that's a lot of pressure. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for anybody to put up with, much less teenagers. And these guys, think about this, they weren't the only four Hebrew young men in this program. There were probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of Hebrew teenagers in this program. And it seems like everybody except for these four guys was just going with the flow. 
But you know what we said about going with the flow, right? Any dead fish can go with the flow. That doesn't take any courage at all, right? It takes a live one to go against the stream. And I'm sure that some of you can relate to what Daniel and his friends were going through, just this massive pressure to conform, to, to compromise. Now, here we have in the first six chapters of the book of Daniel, we, we see three things which were key to Daniel living a God-honoring life in this hostile environment. And they're key for us too, for us to live a God-honoring life in the environments that we're a part of in our lives. The first was this, the power of a made-up mind, the power of a made-up mind. It says in verse 8 that Daniel resolved, some of your translations will say, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or drink the wine that the king drank. In other words, Daniel made up his mind beforehand about what he would do when he would be faced with a particular situation. He basically rehearsed it in his mind. When this happens, this is how I'm going to react. The reasons why, by the way, Daniel didn't want to eat the king's food, really two reasons. One was it wasn't kosher. In other words, it didn't meet the dietary and preparatory restrictions that were put on it by the law of Moses. And so as a Jewish person, he wouldn't eat unkosher food. That was the first one. But also probably because this food was most likely sacrificed to idols. And so Daniel says, you know what? I'm not going to compromise in this area. I'm just not going to do it. He knew that when he was taken to Babylon, he would be faced with a situation like this. And, and he decided ahead of time, when that happens, here's how I'm going to respond. Here's how I'm going to react. And he made that decision ahead of time based on his values and his beliefs before he was ever faced with the actual situation or the actual temptation. And what that allowed him to do is it allowed him to prepare himself and rehearse in his mind how he would act and what he would do when that time came. And I'll tell you, that is massively helpful for you and me as we go about our lives, as we face different temptations or different challenges in our lives or different areas where we need courage. See, when you do that, when you prepare beforehand, when you rehearse through it in your mind, when you determine based on your beliefs and values how you will respond when you are faced with a particular situation, it's so helpful for having the courage and the strength and the ability to do it in the moment. It's kind of like this. If you go to the grocery store without a list, Right, you know what happens. You end up bringing home a bunch of stuff that you had no business buying, right? Like, but if you go to the store with a list, it's a totally different experience. You, you think more clearly because you thought about beforehand based upon your values and your beliefs, what you were gonna do. You made a plan. But if you go to the grocery store with no plan, right? It's all cookies and, and donuts and Doritos, right? In, in the book of James, James talks about this progression that takes place. There's a progression that takes place when we sin. In other words, we don't just like fall into sin like, oops, I, I did it again, right? Like uh, in James, he talks about this progression that takes place when we sin. The first thing that happens is we encounter some kind of temptation. And then that temptation gives birth to a desire within us to do that thing. And then if you give in to that desire, that's when you sin. And then he goes beyond that. He says, well, if you keep going down this path and you don't put the brakes on, if you don't stop, it will eventually Take, keep going, it'll snowball, and it will destroy you, is what James says. In other words, what James is telling us is that nine times out of ten, sin isn't something that happens by accident. It's not something that happens to you by accident. It's actually the culmination of a long process and a long number of decisions. In other words, sin isn't something we fall into. It's something we walk into step by step. And so knowing that, one of the wisest and most practical things we can do 
is for you to make up your mind now. Make up your mind now ahead of time about the things that you believe, about the things that you value, and make a plan for how you are going to respond when you are faced with a particular challenge or with a particular temptation or an area where you need courage to do the right thing. You know, earlier this week, I was reading a book uh, and the author was talking about how uh, what happens with a lot of people is that in a moment of crisis, when they they see they, they are in an accident or they witness a crime, is that your heart rate goes up really fast and you're no longer able to think clearly. And so what happens a lot of times that the emergency responders have discovered is that people try to dial 911 and they can't, right? Like, so they'll, oftentimes they'll end up dialing 411, which isn't even close to 911, but they'll dial 411 instead of 911. Or another thing that happens is they'll be able to dial 911, but they'll just forget to press the send button and they'll just be standing there wondering why the phone isn't going through. Because what happens, right, when something like that happens and you get this huge rush of adrenaline, your, your body starts to function based on what it's been programmed to do. In other words, if you've never done 911 before, your body's going to have a hard time in the moment uh, doing that because you begin to act without thinking. That's your body's kind of emergency response system. And so what they tell people, these emergency responders, they tell people, here's what we want you to do. We want you to practice dialing 911. Like don't actually push send and do it, but practice doing that. And basically what you're doing, you're building muscle memory into your, your body. You're programming your body so that when you are in a, a situation where you need it, you will already be programmed to dial 911. And, you know, if you think about this, this is what martial arts do. This is what police and, and firefighters do. They go through drills over and over and over again because they're training their mind and training their body on how to move so that when they are in a crisis situation, they'll be able to act without thinking because they already programmed themselves for how to respond in that situation. And I think that's a really good picture of what's true for us and what Daniel did here in his life, that one of the most powerful things you can do is determine ahead of time, based on your beliefs and your values, how you're going to react and what you're gonna do in a particular situation when you're faced with a challenge or with a temptation so that you can respond in a way that aligns with God's word and aligns with what you truly believe. So Daniel, first of all, made a resolution. The next thing that we see Daniel did, he was very open about his faith. Did you notice that? It says there in verse eight that Daniel went and he talked to the chief of the eunuchs, the guy who was in charge of their program there, and he asked him to allow him to not defile himself. I love that, that Daniel was a guy who said, I'm not gonna compromise my convictions. And yet he was totally courteous, right? Like he didn't have to be rude about it. He didn't have to be adversarial about it. He went there and as much as he could, he said, I'm gonna be courteous. I'm gonna tell this guy, hey, this is what I believe. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. And I don't wanna, I don't wanna defile myself. And he's open with the chief eunuch about his faith. And I think, again, this is one of the most helpful things that you can do that I've found is this. Be upfront and open about your faith and it will set the tone for your relationships. So whether it's in your workplace or with your family members, be open about your faith. Don't keep it a secret. In other words, go on record. You don't have to be confrontational about it. You don't have to be adversarial about it. It's just matter of fact. Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I believe. And it will set the tone for your relationships when you put that out on the table. Even if people don't believe what you believe, it will, most of the time they're gonna respect you. 
And it will help people understand who you are and what boundaries you have. And it will, it will help you also to know that they know that. See, it helps you to know that they know that about you and that you're a follower of Jesus. So those things, but also here's the last one I want to point out to you. Daniel was also willing to pay the price. He was willing to pay the price for what he believed. It says there in chapter one, right? We read this story. He wanted to be a vegetarian. Everything works out great, right? These guys, it says they only eat vegetables and water. And it says that they got healthier. In fact, it says in verse 15 that they got fatter than everybody else. And that is the verse I always point to when I'm talking to vegetarians. I'm like, see, this is why I'm not a vegetarian. Because the Bible says that these guys got fatter. And I just, I'm just not into that, right? Like I just don't want to gain weight and be fat. So that's why I'm not a vegetarian. So later on, it says in chapter 6, Daniel faces another trial. This time it's not about the food. This time it's about prayer. They make this law when the new administration comes in, the Persian administration comes in, and they make this law that nobody's allowed to pray to any other god for 30 days except for the king because they considered him a god. And so Daniel says, well, obviously I, I can't abide by that rule. And so he keeps praying anyway. And of course, you might know the story. He gets thrown in a den of hungry lions. Now, you and I, most likely know how that story ends. If you don't, here's what happens. Daniel doesn't die. God protects him from the lions. They don't eat him. But remember this, like Daniel didn't know that he wasn't gonna die, right? Like he knew, if I pray out my window for everybody to hear, I'm gonna get thrown in a den of lions and I'm going to maybe die. Like he was willing to pay the price if that was what the price was. We see a similar story in Daniel chapter 3, another very famous story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three guys we met there in chapter 1. And in that story, it says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar made this great statue of himself, and he said, okay, whenever I blow the trumpet, everybody has to bow down and worship the statue. And these young men were like, sorry, but we can't do that. We worship one God. Like, he, he made us, he, he told us, you shall not worship any other gods before me, so we can't. And the king tells those guys, he says, look, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you don't fall in line, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, if you don't bow down before this statue of me, I'm going to throw you in a fire. And he says there in chapter 3, not even your God will be able to save you from this. And I love how they respond. It's there in chapter 3, starting in verse 16. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. Again, they're very courteous. They say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. If you do this, just know this, that the God we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But check this out. They said, but even if he doesn't, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you set up. Did you catch that? They said, our God is able to do it. We believe that he will do it. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, we're still not gonna bow down. I love that, see? See, they end up, you might know the story, they end up getting thrown into the furnace. The furnace is so hot that it kills the people who throw them into it. And yet they go into this furnace and they're not consumed by the flames. In fact, it says that the three men got thrown in and those who looked in after them saw a fourth man standing there with him. And it says there in chapter three that he had the appearance of the son of God. Friends, we know what that is, right? We know exactly what that is. It would seem to be an appearance of Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. Because you and I know Jesus didn't begin to exist when he was born in Bethlehem. He's existed from eternity past. 
And so it would seem that this is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And that should be very encouraging to us because what does it tell us? It tells us that when you and I go through fiery trials in our lives, that Jesus will be there with us and he will see us through. But here's the deal. These guys were saved from the flames. But, but did you catch what they said to Nebuchadnezzar? They said, look, our God can save us. We believe that he will save us. But even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow down. That's the power of a made-up mind. I love that. And I think it's the right attitude for us to have. See, we pray for things and we can hope for things. But here's the deal. We should do it with full confidence that God can and even trusting that he will. But here's the thing. Even if he doesn't, we still trust him. Because ultimately, our relationship with God isn't based on what he can do for me. It's based on who he is, right? I don't worship him because he is useful to me. I worship him because he's beautiful to me. Let me ask you that question. Have you asked yourself that question? Do you worship God primarily because you view him as useful to you? Or do you worship God primarily because you see him as beautiful to you? See, he can save you from the fiery trial. And maybe he will. But even if he doesn't, you still want to follow him because who he is, his plans, you don't even know the full picture. So of course, follow him even if you don't know what he's doing or maybe even when he doesn't save you from the fiery trial. Because you know what? In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about this very thing. It says there were, it says, he says, you know, this hall of faith, there's all these people who had faith. And he says there at the end of the chapter, there were people who by their faith opened the mouths of lions and quenched the flames of fire and avoided death by the sword. Well, that's, that's what it's talking about. These are events that happen in the book of Daniel. But then it goes on and it says, but there were others who died by the sword. There were others. Some were raised back to life and some were not raised back to life. And he says there were others. And you know what their hope was in? Their hope was not just in being saved from the flames. Their hope was in being resurrected to a better life. See, that's what we have as Christians. That's the hope of the gospel. It isn't just hope that God's gonna save us from every difficult situation. It's hope that no matter what happens in this life, he is going to save us and resurrect us to a better life, that there's a better life that awaits us. And when we know that, it sets us free to honor God with every part of our lives and be courageous because we know that the true life that is really life awaits us on the other side. And finally, the, the third, uh, sorry, the second, the second point here is this, the power of integrity, the power of integrity. In, in Daniel chapter six, we find, of course, this very famous story of Daniel and the lion's den. And again, the setting here is this. Daniel has been in Babylon for several years now and there's a new administration in town. Daniel's still in Babylon, but the Babylonian empire has been conquered and taken over by the Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. Maybe you remember a couple weeks ago, we studied Habakkuk, and Habakkuk was asking God, you know, God, why are you letting the Babylonians take over uh, Jerusalem? And God said, don't worry, I'm gonna judge the Babylonians too, and they're gonna be conquered by another nation. Well, that's exactly what happened. Babylon conquered Jerusalem, and then several years after that, Babylon itself was conquered by a conglomeration of the Medes and the Persians. This happened in about the mid-500s BC. 
The Medes and the Persians got together. They overthrew the Babylonian Empire and they took over the city of Babylon. And Daniel has been in Babylon this whole time and he's still in Babylon. And now there's a change of administration. No longer is it the Babylonians in charge. Now it is the Medes and the Persians. And there's a new emperor. We read about him. His name is Cyrus. And by the way, Cyrus is going to be the guy, as we're going to see next week as we go on, who is going to sign the decree that allows the Jews to go back to uh, their homeland and resettle their homeland. And we read about that, by the way, in the, the Bible books of Nehemiah and Ezra, if you're looking for some reading to do. But in chapter six, this new governor of Babylon, his name is Darius, and he really likes Daniel. And that makes some of Daniel's co-workers a little bit uncomfortable. They feel threatened by Daniel, so they decide that they're gonna try and take him down. And here's the interesting thing. It says there, that the uh, high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was found in him. It says there in chapter 6, verse 5, these men said, we cannot find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with his God. See, these guys are trying to dig up some dirt on Daniel. They're trying to find something they could use against him, a skeleton in the closet, something they could expose on him. But there was nothing to expose. The, the prophet Ezekiel, we're going to read about him next week. But Ezekiel actually talks about Daniel. They were contemporaries. And twice, Ezekiel says in his book that Daniel was a man of righteousness. He was a man in which there was no falsehood. There was nothing fake. See, when it comes to living a God-honoring life in a hostile environment... There's something very powerful about integrity. Something very powerful about integrity. One of the things we see here with Daniel is that the two pagan rulers he served under, Nebuchadnezzar and then Darius, they both end up honoring, giving honor and glory to God. That's interesting, right? Nebuchadnezzar does it in chapter four. Darius does it in chapter six. They both give honor to God in large part because of the way that Daniel conducts himself. See, there's an interesting dynamic we talked about this last year when we did our series about, you know, why, what are the top reasons why people give for why they struggle with Christianity? We're going to do another one of those series again, by the way, just after Easter this year. We're going to call it, I could never believe in a God who, and then we're going to look at some answers to that question. Last year, what we did, we took a poll and we asked people, what do you, what do you find are the number one reasons why you yourself struggle with Christianity or why people you know have a hard time really embracing Christianity? And, and you probably already know our poll gave back the same result as every other poll that's been done on this topic. The number one reason that people give for why they struggle with really embracing Christianity is they say Christians are hypocrites. Christians are hypocrites, right? In other words, people have seen the way that, that Christians have said one thing or done another, their actions didn't match their words, or maybe they've been hurt by people in the church who didn't act in a Christ-like way. And as a result, some people have said, well, I don't want anything to do with the church, and I don't want anything to do with Christianity. And the logic behind it kind of goes like this. They say, if these are the kinds of people that Christianity creates, then there must be something fundamentally wrong with Christianity itself. Now, I just want to say, that's actually not very good logic, right? Uh, it's what we call an ad hominem argument. An ad hominem argument means this, where you kind of sidestep the actual issue and you make it about a person. So you attack a person instead of dealing with the, the actual issue at hand. It'd be kind of like this if you said, well, I don't believe in gravity because I heard that Isaac Newton was... Uh, 
a terrible person, right? Like Isaac Newton was just the worst, therefore I don't believe in gravity. That would be ridiculous. Or it'd be like if you said, well, Abraham, or, you know, it turns out that Albert Einstein was, uh, you know, had a problem with stealing things, right? Like he was always going into stores and just stealing things off the shelf. Therefore, I don't believe in the theory of relativity. Well, that would be silly. Whether it's a logical thing or not, it is absolutely true. Whether it makes sense or not, it's absolutely true. And it does matter how we behave because apparently this is the number one reason that people give for rejecting Christianity. Now, there might be more to it than what they say, but this is the number one hurdle that they say is the hardest to get over. And so, again, whether it's logical or not, whether it's justified or not, the fact is that this is the reality. You and the way you live your life can either be a tool which helps people to come to faith in Jesus, or it can be a hurdle that people have to get over in order to believe in Jesus. And Paul the Apostle, he said this to the Christians in Philippi. He said, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether it's at work or at school, whether it's in your relationships or with your family, make up your mind from the beginning that you will seek to live with integrity so that your conduct opens people up to considering what you believe about Jesus rather than creating unnecessary hurdles for them to get over in order to believe in Jesus. See, we all make mistakes, and God forgives us of our sins as we confess them, of course. But the, we got to also remember that God's called us to be on a mission. He's called us on a mission to bring his truth and his love into the world. And we don't want to let anything get in the way of that. We don't want to create unnecessary hurdles for people to get over in order to believe in Jesus. Instead, we want to make the path really clear. So Jesus put it this way. He said, let your light so shine before people that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Daniel did. He was upfront about his faith. So when people saw his integrity, they didn't just say, oh, that's Daniel. He's a super good guy. But they said, that's Daniel. The reason he acts that way is because of what he believes about God. The third and final thing here is this the power of engagement. So we've seen the power of a made-up mind, the power of integrity, and now the power of engagement. It's interesting about Daniel is that what he does is he, he's unwavering in his convictions. He's absolutely countercultural. He goes against the flow. He goes against the grain of what everybody's pressuring him to do. And yet, He's totally engaged in society there, right? Like, in other words, he prays, even when he's told, you can't pray anymore, he opens up his window and he prays out loud so people can hear him. That's, that really is, guys, that is a form of, you know, civil disobedience in the very best way, where he says, this law you've made, it's not right and I'm not gonna do it. I will not only, you know, you might have said, well, why do, Daniel, can't you just, it's just 30 days. Can't you just pray silently to yourself? Or maybe just keep your window closed and nobody will know. But Daniel said, no, I'm gonna make a protest in this case. Open my window. I'm gonna pray out loud because this law is just something I'm not willing to do. But you know what he did after that? Then he went to work in the Babylonian government, right? And so he was uncompromising, and yet he was totally engaged in Babylonian life and society. You know, I think there would have been a big temptation for the Jewish people who were exiles in Babylon to just kind of huddle together and not engage with Babylonian society, not get to know their neighbors, not get to know their coworkers, but just kind of bide their time and hold their breath until the day when they would get to finally go back home to Jerusalem. 
But God didn't want them to do that. He sent them in this place, on the one hand, to kind of chastise them and to get their attention and be a wake-up call. But on the other hand, he sent them to this place so they could be salt and light. And so the Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians could find out about the true and living God. You know, again, Jesus said to us, he said, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. They put it on a stand so that it can give light to the whole house. And in the same way, let your light so shine before people that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, light is about illumination. It's the opposite of darkness. It enables you to see things for how they really are. And Jesus is the ultimate source of light and truth. And for us who have entered into a relationship with him, he has put that light in us and he doesn't just give it to us for our sakes, but he gives it to us so that we can shine it to other people as well. So we wanna be uncompromising in our convictions and yet fully engaged with people and society so we can honor God and shine his light in the world. And I'll just finish by saying this. Daniel is a great example for us. He's a great example of how to live a God-honoring life in a hostile environment. But here's the other thing I want you to see. That's all he is. He's only an example. And I don't know about you, but a lot of times I know the things that I should do. And it's not that I need one more example. It's not that I need one more to-do list of things that I need to do. You know what I need and what I'm guessing that you need too. We, we need the power to actually do those things. See, Daniel's a great example, but that's all he is, is a great example. And what we need more, what we really need is something more than just an example. What we need is the power and the strength to actually do these things and live them out. And the question is, where does that kind of strength and power come from? Again, if you leave today with just another checklist of areas where you need to try harder and do better, that hasn't really helped you, has it? What you need and what I need is the power to actually do these things. And the question is, where did that come from? Well, I'll tell you where Daniel got his power, but then let me tell you about a power that Daniel didn't have that's available to us. Where Daniel got his power was from knowing God's actions in the past and God's promises for the future. God's actions in the past and God's promises in the future. That's why we study the word, by the way, so you can see God's actions in the past and know his promises for the future so that you can have the power and the strength to do these things. But let me tell you this, there's another source of strength that's available to us in Christ that Daniel didn't have. You see, Jesus Christ came to this earth He lived with perfect integrity. He was fully engaged with us and for us. And he paid the price for our sins. He took the judgment for all our wrongdoing. Whereas Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and saved from the lions, Jesus was cast by the Father before the great roaring lion, Satan, and sin and death. And he died so that we could be rescued. Whereas Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saved from the flames of the furnace, Jesus took the flames of judgment, the judgment we deserved, so that the flames would not touch us, so that we could be saved. See, everything that was great about Daniel, everything that was great about Daniel's friends, they were just shadows, they were just pictures of who Jesus would be and what he would do. See, Jesus is the true and greater Daniel who isn't just a good example, he's a great savior. And Jesus gave his life not only to forgive your sins and bring you into relationship with God, but also, check this out, to empower you to do the things that God has called you to do. 
See, to be a Christian doesn't just mean to be forgiven. It doesn't just mean that you have a relationship with God. The Bible says that when you put your faith in the gospel, God puts his spirit inside of you and he indwells you and even empowers you from the inside to do what he's called you to do. That's why Paul tells the Ephesians, he tells them, finally, be strong in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. There are times when my strength fails, when your strength isn't enough. And the good news is this, that when you put your faith in Jesus, he indwells you by his spirit. The spirit of God indwells you and not only leads you and guides you, but gives you the strength and ability to do what God has called you to do. So may we be those who make up our minds today to live lives of integrity and to be fully engaged in the mission of God in the world, knowing that he is the one who provides the strength to do it by his spirit within us. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your word, this living word that you give us. And Lord, we pray that these things that we talked about today, they wouldn't be just another checklist of things that we need to try harder and do better. But Lord, as we see these things, we ask you by your spirit within us, to strengthen us and give us the ability to do these things. Thank you, Lord, that the ability doesn't come from us. It's your strength within us, and we can rely on that. Lord, I pray for anybody here today who has not yet received you, who says, I don't know if I have the Spirit of God inside me because I don't know if I've ever really given my life to Jesus. Lord, I pray that this moment would be the moment where they say, yes, I give you everything that I am, my whole life, all that I am is yours. But may that be true of all of us, whether it's for the first time or for the 500th time. We give you our lives today. We trust in the gospel, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And Lord, we dedicate our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.